Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So here's a joke for you guys. Uh, husband and wife, Italian of course, are sitting at the table arguing the old time questions, who's the boss? And then he insisted, I don't want to hear any more for you. I am the head of this house. And she calmly says, okay, I'll be the neck. She turned him wherever she wanted. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from celebrity chef and TV host Lydia Bastianich. Yeah. That'll help break the ice. Later, we'll speak with Van Jones, co-host of CNN's new version of the political debate show, Crossfire. Also coming up, half of Brit Rock superstars The Arctic Monkeys provide an entire playlist. Author and fashionista Simon Doonan provides uniform advice. And poet Nick Laird reads from his new collection, Go Giants. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Obama administration continues to make the case for military action against Syria. The wildfire burning in and around Yosemite National Park has become the fourth largest in California history. The National Security Agency appears to be far more adept at reading emails than has been thought. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Lizzie O'Leary. She is a correspondent and occasional host of public radio's business show Marketplace. Lizzie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I really like animals stories and mm-hmm. and this one I like because it's sort of human I don't know what ingenuity and insanity <laughs> in the face of animals or right, um, what animal is involved we are talking about an alligator snapping turtle terrorizing a Bavarian village in Germany from the bottom of a lake. An alligator snapping turtle that sounds like a terrible mutation mama was an alligator my dad was a turtle <laughs> the Biggest turtle out there, like 120 pounds. They look like terrifying prehistoric creatures. And this one is named Lottie. Good. Wait, is this a children's book or a news story? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it's a tale told to children so that they don't go in this particular Uh Bavarian lake. Scary German folktale alert. This is supposed to be a story from reality. Well, she severed an eight-year-old boy's Achilles tendon. So this is a scary. This is like a big problem in this town. They've been trying to catch Lottie to no avail. Alligator snapping turtles can burrow into the mud. How did she get there? Do they just live in Bavaria? They live everywhere. What? Oh, my gosh. Not in my house. (laughs) Yet. It didn't get, you know, it didn't get airdropped or anything. All right. So the newest idea is to build a giant rake. Come on, Lizzie. I'm totally serious. (laughs) This didn't happen in reality. Lottie and the giant rake. Lottie and the giant rake to rake the bottom of the lake (laughs) and catch Lottie. And they've enlisted, wait for it, the village blacksmith. Oh, man. Those still exist in Bavaria. That's amazing. His name is Hans, and he's 75. Of course he is. (laughs) This could really work. They just will trawl the bottom of the lake with a huge rake and hopefully just scoop up. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's kind of the same thing. Like, that's what you do with oystering. You dredge the bottom. Lizzie, we have to have you on again so we can check on the rake's progress. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) No, Brendan. Really bad. But until then, thanks for the small talk. Anytime. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history's a cloud that's raining booze. Wow, history is an environmental catastrophe, basically. Anyway, first the history part. This week back in 1813, America first said uncle. Michelle Philippi tells us why. Samuel Wilson was the USA. Figuratively speaking... 
his life wasn't especially remarkable. The son of Scottish immigrants, he grew up to run a meat packing business. When the War of 1812 rolled around, Sam supplied barrels of beef to the army. And that's when he became an American symbol. See, the beef barrels were stamped U.S. And soldiers joked the initial stood not for the meat's country of origin, but for the guy who'd shipped it, their good old Uncle Sam. In September 1813, Sam's local newspaper caught wind of the story and ran with it. Soon, Uncle Sam became the go-to nickname for the U.S. government. So when the superstar political cartoonist Thomas Nast needed to symbolize America, he drew a goateed guy in a star-spangled suit and named him Uncle Sam. The best-known Uncle Sam wasn't drawn by Nast, though. It was the one on that I Want You military recruitment poster, illustrated by James Flagg, who humbly based Uncle Sam's face on his own. Rumor has it, so he wouldn't have to pay a model. So that was the history. Now it's time for the booze to go along with it. I'm on the phone with Bob Fornicero. He is the general manager of The Ruck in Troy, New York, which is apparently where the original Uncle Sam came from. Bob, what drink did this uh, history inspire you to make? Well, this kind of inspired us to start off with something that's a little bit of a blue-collar origin, but uh, locally sourced. I think a red, white, and blue collar would be more appropriate for Uncle Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Starting off with 1.5 ounces of Cornelius Applejack. Okay, and what is Applejack? Applejack historically is one of the first spirits to be produced in the United States. It takes these guys roughly 60 pounds of apples to make each bottle. All right, well, what else is in your drink? One ounce of blackcurrant cordial. Okay. A half ounce of Hudson New York corn whiskey. And we garnish the cocktail with an Applejack cherry and a strip of hickory smoked beef jerky from uh, Damn Good Jerky Company. Wow. I wonder why they called it Damn Good Jerky. It's, it's pretty damn good. Okay. It's interesting. Big Brother is also another name for the government related to the family, and people don't like that, but they like Uncle Sam somehow. Well, Uncle Sam's kind of one of those fun characters in history. But he does have that weird facial hair. He kind of looks like a relief pitcher. That little Billy Goat uh, goatee. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I don't believe the real Sam Wilson had a goatee quite as extreme as that one. Yeah, I don't think if you're putting meat in barrels, you should have facial hair hanging around. You'd have to wear a little, uh, little hair net around your chin. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> So, Brendan, cool cocktail. Yeah. I like the jerky garnish. It symbolizes Uncle Sam's meatpacking origins, of course. That was cool, but kind of inelegant, you know, stirring your drink with a strip of beef. (laughs) A little gross. Come on. It's totally classy. Mm. You often saw Cary Grant with a Slim Jim rakishly clenched in his teeth. (laughs) I think that was FDR, actually. He would light it on fire at the end. That's right. That was the guy. (laughs) Listen, everybody, you'll find all our cocktails at dinnerpartydownload.org, and most of them are even vegetarian. So we've made small talk, poured some cocktails, but we're missing a crucial party ingredient, some music to play. And for that, we turn to Alex Turner and Matt Helders of the British rock band Arctic Monkeys. Their 2006 debut is on Rolling Stone's list of the greatest albums of all time, All four of their albums hit number one in the UK. Here they are to tell you about their new release, to suggest a few songs, and to give you a dessert recipe. 
Hello there. This is Alex. I'm with Matt. Hello. And we are both one half of the Arctic Monkeys. We have a new album coming out September 10th called AM. And this is our dinner party soundtrack. We're going to start by playing R. Kelly's new jam, My Story. And apparently he's sticking to it. People are arriving at this point. I'd probably still be finishing off the meal, maybe sautéing the spinach, because that only takes a sec. Oh, while you're cooking? Yeah. People are walking in, they've brought a bottle of wine, they're like, oh, something smells good. Yeah. Like, yeah, R. Kelly, <laughs> check it out. Say life is just a game, and I thank God that I'm winning. Melodies are there, content is more than there. <laughs> yeah. It's just unbelievable. He never ceases to amaze me with his lyrics. This is just his story, you know, he's from that Chi-Town dirt. And yeah. I went from being broke to sleeping in Versace shirts. This is my story. Yeah, I'm from that Chi-Town dirt. I went from being broke to sleeping in Versace shirts. This is my story. It's a true rags to riches tale. What more do you need? After R. Kelly, we might like to play a little bit of Lou Reed. Oh, yeah. Lou Reed from the Transformer LP. Vicious. Vicious. You hit me with a flower. Yeah, at what point in the meal would you play Vicious? Maybe between starter and main. Yeah, and you've still got a, like a vicious hunger. You might do a fish dish. <laughs> vicious fish dish. Like, um, like a swordfish. Yeah, think. no, yeah, we'll do swordfish as a main. After you've listened to Transformer by Lou Reed, you sort of feel like you should have a shower. That's kind of what we wanted our record to uh, evoke. Lou Reed Vicious, rock and roll. So for the third song in the dinner party, we're going to play Joe Cocker, Woman to Woman. I think it naturally takes us to dessert, which will be a chocolate self-sourcing pudding. The way you make this pudding is interesting as interesting as song choice. Because mm -hmm. you're, you're probably thinking, how do they get that chocolate sauce in there when it's surrounded by cake? You have to create sort of a chocolate ice cube, melt the chocolate, then freeze it in a cube tray, put your cake mix around it, cook it, your sauce is in there and it's not escaping. In England, pudding just means dessert a lot of time. Like, oh, right. do you want any pudding? That means do you want any dessert. So it's not just the little pots that you put in a fridge and eat at school. I'm sorry. I was just going to try and sing pudding. Pudding. Dun, 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 dun. Kind of, you can imagine like that spoon going into the thing. It's coming out. Okay, so if it gets to the point, Matt, in the evening when you've brought the cheese out and the coffee and, you know, you've wowed everyone with your Nespresso machine. Yeah. And they're like, 
come on, Matt, play us one of your new tunes. And I'm like, guys, you know I don't usually like to do this. Oh, come on, Matt. I don't even know if I've got a copy of it. Let's hear the new record. And I'm like, okay, I've got this in my pocket. It's called an iPhone. Yeah. And I've got. What are you sticking on? Why do you only call me when you're high? The mirror's image. It tells me it's home time, but I'm not finished. Cause you're not by my side. Who would you like to invite if you could invite anyone, like, you know? Um, David Beckham. Dead or alive. And if we could do dead, I'd probably bring a Stegosaurus. <laughs> now it's three in the morning, and I'm trying to change your mind. Left you multiple missed calls, and to my message you replied. Why'd you only call me when you're high? High. Why'd you only call me when you're high? Dinner Party soundtrack from Alex Turner and Matt Helders of the British rock band Arctic Monkeys. Yep. Their upcoming album is unfortunately not called Self Sauce Pudding. Oh, no. Yeah, it's called AM, and it comes out this week. They really missed an opportunity there. Sad. All right, folks, coming up, Van Jones, newly minted host of TV's Crossfire, tells us even his childhood action figures were political. When the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, fashion maven and author Simon Doonan answers your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, Irish poet Nick Laird reads from his new collection called Go Giants. But first, it is time to meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's attorney and activist Van Jones. Mm. He is a New York Times bestselling author and co-founder of four nonprofit organizations, Time Magazine named him one of America's most influential people. Next week, he begins co-hosting a new version of CNN's classic current affairs debate show, Crossfire. It's back. It is back. Everybody. Van and former political consultant Stephanie Cutter will represent the left. Former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich and conservative columnist Essie Cup will represent the right. When I spoke with Van earlier this week, I asked if he had any misgivings about joining the world of cable news. You know, they, they aren't asking me to represent the Republican Party, so I didn't feel like I was going to be uh, <laughs> too far outside of my domain. You know, also, I, I, I grew up watching Crossfire in you know, my late teens in college with my dad. Um, I learned a lot about politics by watching Crossfire because you know, my dad's a black guy. He's a Southerner. He's an ex-cop in the military. So he doesn't agree with the liberals or the conservatives. And he's sitting there yelling <laughs> at the TV the whole time. And I really learned a lot about politics with my dad in this show. So, you know, no, I didn't have any mis- misgivings at all. When you were a kid, you were you were politically aware, as I understand it. In fact, I read that, is this true, you renamed your Star Wars figures <laughs> so they were Kennedys? True story. Luke Skywalker was uh, JFK, Han Solo was RFK, and Lando Calrissian <laughs> was MLK. That is a true story. That is, that is crazy. And what were you doing with them in the backyard? Like, were they just lecturing, uh, was... talking, have, having affairs with other action figures? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, mean, I was running them for office. You know, I, I used to run uh, JFK for uh, attorney general. And they, I don't know. I, I, was, I was a weird man. I, what can I say? But You were a nerdy dude, I, huh? I, I, was, I, I made Urkel look cool. I'm going to tell you, I was not a cool <laughs> kid. But great training right. for Crossfire. So all the years you watched Crossfire... Did anyone on the other side of the political aisle change your mind? Because I wonder if debate shows do anything more than just reinforce people's pre-existing opinions. Oh, you know, it's it's so hard to know. I mean, if you're a political junkie, you get so many different influences. Uh, I do think, though, you know, timing is everything. And I think we are in a point right now where people are tired of just argument for its own sake, 
the political dysfunction that's kind of crippling the government. I think people really do want to hear a more authentic dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what's great about the way we're doing it now, there's not, not going to be any live audience. It's going to be 30 minutes, very intimate, very small table, one topic for the whole 30 minutes, which means you're going to be out of your talking points within the, but before the first commercial break. And our hope is that it will actually be a place where both the left and the right can come for, for a, a more energetic but also elevated conversation. Well, this is probably as good a time as any to bring up Jon Stewart's famous appearance on Crossfire, the old version of the show. Uh, he made an appearance in 2004, a few months before it was canceled. And he came on the show and he asked the then hosts, Paul Begella and Tucker Carlson, to stop making the show. He said that they were hurting America with their political hackery. And he said, quote, saying this is a debate show is like saying pro wrestling is a sport. And a few <laughs> months later, CNN canceled the show. Yep. First of all, what do you think of Stewart's take on the show? And what, if anything, makes this new iteration of Crossfire different? Well, you know, uh, that, that was a very famous moment in American television. It's become somewhat iconic. What, what I will say is this. After Crossfire went off the air, television got worse. It didn't get better. It got worse. You know, when uh, uh, Tim Russert died, you suddenly wind up in a situation where, you know, my view, there are very few places where both sides have to sit down and have a real conversation. You can look at one uh, cable outlet and you can just hear the right wing beat up on the left wing all day long with very little representation from the left. Or you can look at the other station and it's the left wing beating up on the right with very little representation from the conservatives. And there's really no place you got to eat your Wheaties and show up and, and really survive <laughs> a serious cross-examination. And I think that that is a, a – we need that again now. But, but, I mean, part of his critique wasn't that people weren't voicing their opinions on either side. It was that they were basically voicing the talking points of their respective parties. Right. And do you feel that you're going to be able to have – different conversations and add nuance that doesn't already exist on, on other shows and other channels? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a debate and people can go back and forth. But, I mean, for instance, something's happening right now in American politics. There's a liberal-libertarian alliance, a, a left-right alliance that's developing on a number of topics, whether you're talking about the NSA, whether you're talking about whether we should go into this war with Syria, whether you're talking about marijuana or marriage equality. You can't just say, well, the left thinks this, the right thinks that. And so there will be times where I will be debating Stephanie Cutter, who's a, a Democrat. Uh, we don't agree on everything. Mm. Uh, if, if, you, you know, mm -hmm. if you've seen uh, me and Newt on TV this week, uh, they put us up to debate, and we can't find anything to debate about because we agree on Syria. Stay out. <laughs> so I just think it's, it's, this show is not going to be as predictable as people might fear. Okay, well, here are two things that are predictable but not to be feared. They are our two standard questions. And the first question is, uh, if we're, we were at a dinner party with you— what question should we not ask you? What question are you, Van Jones, tired of being asked? I'm tired of being asked any question about Glenn Beck or the White House. <laughs> so if, if, <laughs> if anybody doesn't, doesn't know the thing, they can, they can Google that. And for those who can't Google at the moment, uh, you briefly worked at the White House. And when you were there, Glenn Beck started making hay about the slightly radical politics of your youth. He also pointed out a speech where you use very strong language to describe Republicans and you ultimately resigned from your position at the White House because you said that it would distract from the president's agenda. It's just, I can see why you just, wouldn't want to talk about that. It's just, it's just boring when people come up to me in airports, public restrooms. Uh, you don't want to have a conversation yeah. about it. So, uh, But, you know, politics is, is a contact sport. 
uh, and uh, you know everybody has good days and bad days in politics. But well, trying to, try to explain that in front of my kids at the farmers market four years later is just kind of boring. Well, I'm sure no one's going to come up to you now that you're on a major news network expounding on progressive politics. Exactly. All right. So our second question is is more of a request. Tell us something we don't know. And this can be about you, or it could just be kind of an interesting factoid. I, I was a comic book nerd when nobody knew who the X-Men were, uh, when people didn't know. <laughs> nobody had ever heard of you know, the difference between Marvel Comics and DC Comics. Like now, it's so crazy to be in my 40s and have all these characters and all this stuff. It's big mythology, huge part of American culture. When I grew up uh, in the rural south on the edge of a small town, uh, there was not a single comic book store. You, you have to go to the convenience store, and they had a little round rack, and you'd wait for your comic books to come. And uh, you yeah. had to be a real geek to to be into it. And uh, <laughs> but I, I was I was a comic book nerd when being a comic book nerd was not cool. All right, and uh, now I'm asking, thinking about your action figures. Were your comic books called The Economist and Newsweek <laughs> by any chance, or were they actual comic books? They, they were the actual comic books, especially the X Men, because you had this group of like outsiders who were trying to trying to do well, even though nobody liked them. And somehow I could relate to that. <laughs> Van Jones. He's a co-host on CNN's Crossfire, which relaunches Monday. Enrico, I asked Van what action figure Newt Gingrich would be. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. And uh, he declined to answer. But for what it's worth, I do think John Kerry bears a strong resemblance to Boba Fett. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. Actually, I think of him more as an Admiral Akbar. Because he has that long face. And he's in the uh-huh, military. Uh-huh. He was in the military. I just wish there was like an Obi-Wan Kenobi in Washington. I think oh. that's what... Amen, my geek brother. Yeah. Uh, folks, if you've made action figures of us, that's a little creepy, but we would love to hear about it. Go to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. To eavesdrop. Northern Irishman Nick Laird has won acclaim for writing that's both smart and approachable. He references everything from 17th century literature to modern sports lingo. His first book of poetry and his first novel were shortlisted for the prestigious Dylan Thomas Prize. Today we overhear him read some new poems. Hi, I'm Nick Laird. I've got a new collection of poems out called Go Giant. I'm going to read some poetry now, which uh, maybe seems as archaic as as lamplighting or or playing the nose flute, but uh, let's see how we get on. So this poem is called Epithalamium, which is a poem for a marriage, a poem written to celebrate a wedding. You're beeswax and I'm bird I'm mostly harmless, you're irrational. If I'm iniquity, then you're theft. One of us is supercalifragilistic. If I'm the most insane, disgusting filth, you're hardly curiosa. You're bubble wrapped to my fingertips. You're winter sleep and I'm the bee dance. And I am menthol and you are eggshell. When you're atrocious, I am spell check. You're the yen, I'm the Nepalese pound. If I'm homesteading, you're radical chic. I'm carpet shock and you're the real. I'm memory foam day on price drop TV and you're the lord of misrule who shrieks when I surface in goggles through duckweed. And I am Trafalgar and you're Waterloo and frequently it seems to me that I am you and you are me 
If I'm the rising incantation, you're the charm, or I am, or you are. So this is the title poem, Go Giants. The first references to a 1980s cartoon character, Inspector Gadget, who I'm sure will be familiar to you all. It's sort of a part biography and part invective and part something else. I'm not sure. Go, go, gadget legs. Go right, go left. Go wrong, go west. Go down to the sea in ships. Go down to the river and pray. Go fish, go first. Go forth and multiply. Go in now and say goodbye. Go blind, go deaf. Go short, go long, go to press, go to pot, go f*** yourself, go straight, go braves, go jump in a lake, go hard, go hide, go down with the case of, go ape, go without, go patriots, go halves, go slow, go under the knife, go under the sign of the war shaft, go one better, Go great guns, go south, go out in the midday sun. Go red, go blonde, go vandals. Go tell it on the mountain. Go and sin no more. Go compare, go nuclear. Go back to E7 from E8. Go paperless. Go cowboys, go redskins. Go naked, go to ground, go ahead, go abroad. Go to grass, go slack, go all ironic. Go down in a blaze of, go titans, go for the sake of, go saints, go fly a kite, go against, go gaga, go in peace to love and serve the, go and get help, go directly to jail, go down in flames, go up in smoke, go for broke, go tell Aunt Rhody, go tell the Spartans, go to hell, go into detail, go for the throat. Nick Laird, reading Epithalamium and the title poem of his new collection, Go Giants. It comes out this week, and you are listening to the Dinner Party Download, Go American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. So, Brendan, you like pizza, right? Am I a human who exists in the world? Yes, yes, you are. Yes, I am. Then you like pizza. And what? how about your thoughts on uh, pita, pocket sandwiches, quesadillas, and calzones? Also tasty things I enjoy putting in my mouth. Well, that's perfect because a panuzzo is all of those things at once, wow. sir. Wow. The food singularity finally achieved. Indeed. It comes from Italy's Campania region, and recently the L.A. pizza joint 800 Degrees Pizza became the first place in town to sell these magical sandwiches, so I, of course, had to investigate. Obviously. Yes. When I stopped by, owner Anthony Karen told me what panuzzo means. What it usually refers to in the Campania region is sandwiches that are made on pizza dough bread. And this really grew out of the fact that if you work in a pizzeria, you get, tend to get a little bit bored of pizza after a time. So you know, Perish the thought. I know, right? <laughs> so the pizza makers wanted to do something else just for themselves, and they would take the dough, bake it off in the oven, stuff it with meats and cheeses, and then rebake it so it got nice and crispy. And that's kind of what we're doing here. 
we are taking a pizza dough, we're baking it naked, and it puffs almost like a pita dough because there's nothing to hold it down. So you get this big puffy bag of air, we cut it in half, and then we take each half, fill it with meats and cheeses, pop it back in the oven to crisp it back up, or do it on a panini press, either way. But this is a traditional thing, it's been around, you're not like making this up, right? Yeah, it's very traditional, especially in Campania, the region around Naples where pizza got its start. But we haven't seen much of it in the US. There's just a couple of places that I'm aware of. I'm assuming the, the stuffings and the meats are not, you know, your standard pepperoni. Right, well, one of the most typical combinations around that region is what we call salsiccia e friorelli. And friorelli is a kind of a unique type of spread broccoli. It's really similar to broccoli rabe. Sausage and friorelli um, broccoli rabe is a really common combination there. You'll see it as a plate, you'll see it on a pizza, you'll see it in a sandwich. So we took that idea and are doing it here. We have a great spicy Italian sausage. Stick it inside our our panuzzo bread, some sautéed broccoli rabe, and just a, a little fontina cheese. So it's funky, it's spicy, it's bitter, it's earthy, it's got everything. Man, I saw also on the menu this like a lamb, which seems more, you know, almost Greek Mediterranean than Italian Mediterranean. Yeah, I mean, you certainly see lamb in Italy. That one, it has some Greek overtones to it for sure. We're putting feta cheese on it. We are using Calabrian chilies from from the boot heel of Italy, and then we're braising lamb shoulder and kind of picking it and putting it in there. I can't stand this for a second longer. Can I try one of these Let's things? Try them all. By the way, one of my favorite smells in the world is the inside of a pizza joint. We're standing right in front of a wood-fired oven, so that's like I could practically live here if it wasn't so hot. Yeah, it's amazing. We love it. We come home smelling like pizza. My girlfriend loves me. <laughs> All right, what are we doing here? First one is a porchetta, and porchetta is uh, basically you take a bacon or the belly of a pig and wrap it around the loin, season it with a lot of fennel pollen, and then roast it on a wood spit. So we've taken porchetta, shaved it really thin, um, some fresh mozzarella for that melty, ooey-gooey effect, and then we take um, pickled cherry peppers for some sweet and sour. It looks, by the way, my first thing as soon as you took this thing out, it looks like a small calzone. In a way, it's sort of a hybrid of a calzone and almost a quesadilla. You know, a calzone would only be baked once, and here we've baked the dough and then stuffed it and then rebaked it so it's nice and crispy. All right, I'm going to try this. Oh man, the word that springs to mind is savory. It's really savory with just a little bit of saltiness. It's awesome. Yeah, we try to keep that one. That one's just very simple. It's just all about pork and cheese and peppers. There's nothing else going on there, but the, the combination is magic. All right, I could eat this all day, but I'm gonna hold off a second. Yeah, let me try one more of these. Maybe the, do you have the broccoli rob one? Here's the uh, salsiccia friorelli. And I'm sorry, this, is this actually broccoli rub or it's something like it? Friorelli is really close to broccoli rub. There's nobody really growing it in the U.S. We're trying to sneak some seeds in, but um, broccoli rub is basically identical. It's a leafy, bitter broccoli that we, we saute. All right. You can see we take a whole sausage and just cut it in half, so it's almost like our version of a bratwurst or a hot dog or something. This reminds me of my East Coast upbringing, actually, a sausage sandwich. Right. They would say, you know, sausage sandwich with a red sauce. They wouldn't even tell you what it was in. <laughs> you know, we played around with, we almost did a meatball uh, with a red sauce, but then it was just a little too wet and a little too gloppy. We wanted to keep them, you know, in Italy, uh, it's, it's usually a pretty restrained sandwich. It's not a lot of stuff jumping out at you and messing your hands and your face because it's something you want to eat on the go, you know. All right, I'm going to take a bite of this guy. Oh, wow. 
that's really, it's kind of surprisingly sophisticated. The bitterness is really forward in that. The bitterness really cuts through the richness of the fontina and helps balance out the spiciness of the uh, sausage itself. Do you remember when you first ate one of these? Was it kind of a eureka moment? We actually learned about panuzzo from some of our pizza makers who are from Naples, and they would make this as a little snack to eat, you know, for all the cooks and for the staff to eat at, at lunch. Do they get a cut of the profit? <laughs> yeah, I pay them every two weeks. <laughs> And Brendan, for those on special diets... Oh, this will be good. Anthony told me a panuzzo has half the carbs of regular oh, pizza. Healthy. However, that is not going to help you when you eat two entire panuzzos, which is what I did after Dude, reporting Dude, you double panuzzoed. I did it. It happens. Yes, if you're me. Folks, coming up, fashion scribe Simon Doonan chimes in with advice like, wear that uniform to the wedding. Yes, 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 and pile on the medals. All that and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor worth talking about at your weekend gatherings. I am Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from Cass McCombs, and we speak with the director of a new documentary about VHS videotapes. Sorry, it's not available in beta. Nor is anything else. But first, it is time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and we invite a person of substance to answer them. And this week, returning to our show is Simon Doonan. For 20 years, Simon designed legendary window displays for the luxury department store Barney's, where he is now creative ambassador. He's a contributor to Slate.com, and he's also written several books, including Gay Men Don't Get Fat, Wacky Chicks, and his latest, The Asylum. Simon, thanks for joining us. How are you? Very good. I'm, I'm disappointed you're not in the studio with me because I dressed up for you. Oh, my God. You didn't dig out that old leopard jumpsuit again. <laughs> sure did. did. I did. I put on my public radio boa. Yeah. <laughs> it says NPR in the end. Right. Yeah, and a little um, polka-dotted sundress. But other than that, I'm well. Uh, <laughs> so this book is a collection of essays about your life in fashion and the thesis is that a lot of your peers are so crazy that they should be committed. So who's maybe your favorite or most memorable borderline personality? Um, I guess, I mean, my thesis is really that fashion is simultaneously an asylum where nutty people go, but it's also a refuge for super freaks like me who are basically <laughs> unemployable and probably couldn't even get a job in a strip club. Um, so who's my favorite eccentric? Well, one of my favorite eccentrics is highlighted in a chapter which I call When Bossy Bitches Rule the Earth. <laughs> and that is Diana Vreeland, oh, the great fashion editor. And she was really hilarious and not at all what you would think of a Vogue or Harper's Bazaar fashion editor. She was very unconventional and unpredictable and sort of like a punk rock lady. Oh, really? I mean, there was that movie about her recently, and I didn't get the, the punk rock aspect of her. Well, we're talking about somebody who put rouge on her ear. Her ears were bright red. <laughs> you know, whatever she felt like doing, she did it. And she was really proto in discovering, like, the 60s was a big thing for her. Yeah. She was the first person to photograph all the groovy Twiggies and the Gene Shrimptons and the Mick Jaggers. She always mm. came out with these insane expressions, like Brigitte Bardot's lips made Mick Jagger's lips possible. <laughs> so you're like, Paved oh, the way. Right, she's yeah. so right about that. Well, it's no uh, accident then that you open the book with a quote from Diana Vreeland, which is, exaggeration is my only reality. 
And you seem to follow that rule in your book. You know, all the models are super dumb. You yourself, I think it's safe to say, kind of play up the dandy. But here's, here's what we're curious about, though. What stereotypes about fashion aren't true? I would say fashion people are extremely warm and funny and very much look out for each other. So that mm. idea of people stomping all over each other Catty. and clawing their way you know, and digging their Lee press on nails into each other. That's not accurate. And but where does the Devil Wear Prada come from then? Um, I don't know. When I, <laughs> when I read The Devil Wears Prada, I didn't recognize anybody in it. You know, the coat-flinging tyrant, the editor, is nothing like Anna Wintour. Anna Wintour's actually very straightforward and <clears throat> has achieved her success through being quite pragmatic and very well mm. liked by her employees. Boring. Exactly. No one's ever going to believe you. <laughs> all right. Well, Simon, you too are well liked and occasionally pragmatic. <laughs> and those are all the qualifications you need to answer our listeners' etiquette questions. Are you ready? I'd love to. Great. All right. Here is something from Liz in Bethlehem, PA. And Liz writes very simply, is it all right to buy a shirt that you just saw your friend wearing? Speaking of bitchy, <laughs> uh-oh. Well, Liz, keep in mind, Liz, that I actually give really terrible advice. I'm not one of those, you know, you know that whole idea of Queer Eye for the straight guy running around, like getting people's mullets removed and smartening them up? I'm not that person. No. Like, I'm not one of those people that wants everyone to look, like, preppy and the same. Yeah. I would rather people look demented. Yeah. So keeping yeah. that in mind, Liz, <laughs> I would say, here's what you do. Yes, you buy the same shirt, and everything that she buys, you buy. <laughs> and then it becomes... It becomes like a performance art I love it. thing oh, where true. you're like Gilbert and George and you're like, oh, there's that girl who everything I buy, she buys. Yeah, I like it. What if you just picked a stranger and started doing that? Not your friend. Um, <laughs> I think work. it's a genius thing to do. Like, And then other people might see you and start doing it to you. And before you know it, there'd be a whole like flash mob of people wearing the same shirt. That's art for sure. So yes, yes, yes. All right. There you go, Liz. This next question comes from... M.A. and was sent to us via Facebook. And the question is, when you're in a party and the music is terrible, is it okay to tell the host to change it? Or do you just pour your drink on the sound system and pretend you accidentally spilled it, then offer your iPhone music collection instead? Well, M.A., keep in mind that terrible is a subjective term. Like sure. one person's punk rock is another person's lounge music. Mm. You know what I mean? Like we all mm -hmm. have different tastes. But if you're really having a rough time with the music that the host's playing, the key is to start dancing in a very strange way, <laughs> sort of like you're having a voodoo freak out and not in time to the music, but enough that it creates some kind of discomfort yeah. among the other guests. Oh, I see where you're and, going. Um, yeah. Because you're responding to it in such a creepy deranged kind of way, they will change the music. I like that. Sure, that's the fashionable thing, not necessarily the most social thing to do, but certainly you'll get your way. Uh, all right, this is from Robert in El Paso, Texas. Robert writes, I'm attending a civilian wedding soon. Is it appropriate to wear my military dress uniform? I have heard it's only okay to show up in uniform if the groom is wearing one. 
But there's also conflicting advice that it's what we always should wear to black tie events as it is our equivalent of a tuxedo. A hundred percent wear your military uniform for many reasons, like you should be proud of it. Um, a uniform is infinitely more interesting than a tuxedo, just from a purely <laughs> objective point of view. Mm-hmm. And secondly, is there anything more boring than a wedding? I mean, <laughs> weddings are the ultimate snore. And you really? turning up in your military outfit, you know, people are going to want to chat to you. You can tell your stories, your experience. So yes, yes, yes. And pile on the medals. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I have a question. What if... What if Liz is Robert's friend? Should she wear a uniform too? Oh, there you go. (laughs) Oh, that would be hot. (laughs) That would be so hot. Uh, All right, here is a final question. This comes from Jonna in West Chicago, Illinois. And Jonna writes, I have just returned from a trip to Paris with three girlfriends. Among other things, we visited the catacombs below Paris. Six million bodies were relocated there from other cemeteries around the city. Pictures are allowed, but without flash photography. What the heck do you do when you are having your picture taken in front of a wall of bones? Hmm. Do you smile? Do you not smile? Should you not take any pictures at all? Hashtag catacombs etiquette problems. This is a common problem. Um, I think you do a Victoria Beckham. You know, she's very committed to not smiling when people take a picture. So when you're in a catacomb, you just think, what would Victoria do? And you do that Mm. face. It's like a sort of girl's version of a Zoolander face. I think that works for the catacombs. (laughs) I would like to go online and see, like, what other people are doing. That would be a good Tumblr page, I think, of just photos in front of the wall of bones. Well, do you need a picture is my part of my question. Can't you just remember what it was like? Well, apparently, I mean, people just relentlessly document everything, don't they, to a degree that I find quite dizzying and incomprehensible. But a wall of bones, that's a rare thing. I mean, I kind of want some kind of souvenir, and I don't think you can take a bone. (laughs) I'm sure there's a lovely postcard in the shop. Exactly, exactly. That's what people used to do. Oh, let's go to the shop and buy a postcard. (laughs) Postcard makers were the early Instagrammers. Uh, Simon Dunin, thanks for coming on and telling our audience how to behave. Oh, my... My pleasure. Simon Doonan, his new book is called The Asylum, a collage of couture reminiscences and hysteria. Enrico, I want to reiterate, Simon's official title is Creative Ambassador at Large for the luxury store Barney's. That's right. Which means not only is his book called The Asylum, but one could ask him for asylum. Fashion asylum. Yes, exactly. If you're a fashion victim. Of course. He can help you. (laughs) People, here at the Dinner Party Download, we can offer refuge for your etiquette questions, all of them. Send them to us via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now... Time for Chattering Class, where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. Our topic today, the golden age of VHS tapes, the 1980s and 90s. And our teacher is Josh Johnson. His new documentary, Rewind This, explores the history of that low-res yet groundbreaking VHS video format. It's on iTunes and making the rounds of theaters now. And Josh, welcome. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So anyone who grew up in that era remembers those big, clunky VHS cassette tapes. This was the way we recorded TV shows at home. When we rented pre-recorded movies from a video store, they were on VHS. But there was another video format called Beta that looked and sounded better. Why did VHS tapes become the dominant video format? Well, I mean, there's a number of factors, the largest being that 
you could fit more on a tape. And the average audience member that is not necessarily, you know, an audio video file is more interested in having the largest amount on the tape so that they can record a full sports game or something like that rather than having it in the best looking or best sounding condition. Sure. Or you can see all of Apocalypse Now on one tape instead of divided across several. Absolutely. And I think that's still sort of true to a certain extent now in that, you know, a lot of streaming technologies actually produce a, a lower grade picture and, you know, sound quality than what we have on Blu-ray. But people, for the most part, are very content to consume things that way. For most people, it's really about convenience and access and affordability. And I think that was true then and it's true now. That's true. And as a Gen Xer, I do, I have nostalgia for VHS tapes. I still have some VHS tapes with, you know, things I taped off TV in the 1980s. (laughs) But I have to say, I don't miss it as a format. It's just not, it, it was a very junky technology. The tapes wore out and they would break. You've made a whole movie about people who collect movies in this format. You yourself are clearly into it. What is the appeal to you? I mean, I think my interests are perhaps different from some of the subjects in the film. For me, it's not so much a love of that particular format or the video aesthetic, the way it looks or, you know, the experience of watching something on a tape. It's really more of an archival value. They're was so much released onto VHS, so much more than we'll ever see on any future home video format because the windows of those formats, uh, shelf life, keeps becoming shorter and shorter. VHS was basically around for a long time. Exactly. It was around for a long time, so everything came out. And as a result, things that there would be no commercial reason to re-release, we're not going to see those again. And so VHS is now the kind of last stop for a huge chunk of our cultural history. These kind of B, C, and D level movies that came out basically direct to video, there is, I have to say, an endless parade in this movie of clips from those movies. Mm-hmm. They're amazingly bad, a lot of them, and therefore hilarious. What is your favorite kind of trashy video you came across while making this movie? My favorite video that I've come across is a Canadian film called Science Crazed. And it was made in the late 80s, shot on 16 millimeter, very inexpensively, and then never released for a number of years. And then in 1991, uh, a home video label in Canada decided to bring it out and The reason it was sort of deemed to be unreleasable initially is that they didn't really shoot enough footage to make a feature film. They basically had about two-thirds of what you would need to put together a feature. So the way they were able to get it up to an acceptable running time is by recycling a lot of the same moments and the same shots into new scenes and new contexts. So you actually see the same footage repeated over and over. You'll have the same (laughs) shot of a person walking down a hallway repeated 10 minutes later. And it's endlessly fascinating to watch for me because it doesn't really feel or look like a movie. It's almost like an avant-garde theater piece or like a gallery (laughs) installation. But it wasn't intended to be. It was intended to be, you know, a popular, fun horror film. And that kind of breakdown between what it was intended to be and what it actually is, is something that I find really valuable and really interesting. And I've watched it far more times than I would like to admit. (laughs) Did these movie, now these movies kind of were able to make money because of the video store boom basically right it's like people would just go in and there weren't enough studio films on the shelves and people would rent these you know, low-budget B, C, and D movies just because that's what was there, really? Yeah, I mean, I think people didn't really understand necessarily that that's what they were renting. You would look at a shelf, and there would be some studio films, and there would be very low-budget films, but they were both in, you know, the same video cassette boxes, and they were sitting on the shelf right next to each other. Uh, a Warner Brothers title and uh, something that was produced regionally in Nebraska more or less looked like they could be the same thing. It's amazing. And therefore, of course, the the covers, 
become incredibly important because you need to make those movies inside look like they are on par with the studio product. You talk to a lot of the artists who made these video boxes for these low-budget movies. Of the millions of these things you must have looked at, what stands out in your mind? Well, as far as just uh, an, a really evocative piece of video box art, there's a movie called The Killing of Satan, which uh, is not an incredible film. It, you know, it came out in 1983. <laughs> what a surprise. But the box really does make it look like it's going to be this uh, guided tour of hell. <laughs> And it's so exciting to think about what that experience is going to be. And it's not really at all what the film is, but that's also kind of part of what makes it special, that it evokes your uh, something inside your mind that is far broader and far greater and far bigger than what the film could ever be. I will admit that I, I worked at several video stores as a teenager, and the box that stood out for me was a horror movie called Chopping Mall. Yeah, we actually were going to talk to the director of Chopping Mall, and uh, he was shooting something while we were in Los Angeles, and he now basically shoots films in like four days. What? Um, so, yeah, it's really crazy. Uh, usually for the direct-to-video market, sometimes I think he's made a couple things for the Sci-Fi Channel, but uh, he's now become kind of known as the guy that can make a film in a weekend. So <laughs> that's how he has stayed employed. See, VHS, without without VHS tapes, that guy would not have a career. Actually, I mean, I, this would have been great to film, too, in his kitchen when you go into his house, uh, in all of his drawers, like where you would ordinarily have cutlery, he has VHS tapes of his films that he's made. He doesn't, like, <laughs> put them on a shelf. He has them, like, in his cabinets and drawers in his kitchen, which is pretty great. So, Brendan, I just wanted to point out a couple of things. First of all, this is the theme from Chopping Mall mm -hmm. by a guy named Chuck Serino, and it is pretty 80s-tastic. Yeah, more danceable than scary. Indeed, and awesome. And also, yes, I did ask Josh, and he is looking into releasing his movie about VHS tapes on VHS tapes. Wow, that is okay. So the clips from the low-res movies will look even more low-res. Yeah, they'll basically be just blurry, <laughs> colored blobs. All right, and folks, that's the Dinner Party download for this week. But don't fret, we are live 24 hours a day on Twitter. Our handle is at DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker is assistant producer of the Dinner Party download. Our interns are James Delahousey, Davey Kim, and Brittany Martin. Engineering assistance was provided by Chris Clark. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's Dinner Parties. And just in time for Autumn, it's singer-songwriter Cass McCombs. He has released a new track. It's from his upcoming album Big Wheel and Others. The song is called There Can Be Only One. There can bon appetit. All that which is that which shall be done They say it's nothing new I give my heart away to just one And it can be only you
That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for listening. Wait a second. Wait a second. What? What are you wearing? A uniform. Simon said that if you had one, you should wear one. That's a cheerleading uniform. Give me a D.